What's the most important resource that you have? If you really thought about this deeply, I think you'd come to the same conclusion that Joey and I did. It's time. In our newest book, Wealth Without Wall Street, The Three Steps to Financial Freedom Through Passive Income, we talk about how are we tracking that time? Well, what is the thing that we can do to get more of that time back? That's right. If you've ever been listening to our podcast and thought, man, it would be amazing if I could take all the things that you guys have learned over the last 10 years and just summarize them, put them in some way to easily digest them and take action, that's what this book is all about. You're not going to want to miss it. Go to wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash new book and get your copy today. Stallion, years ago, you showed me the light with taking your daughters to breakfast on a regular basis. And I've expanded that to all my kids. So every Wednesday, I take one of them to breakfast. And this morning, I was taking Betsy. And we got into the conversation about how to make money, right? Like, she, this is my little entrepreneur. She's I was always, about to say, I'm not surprised. Like, Betsy is always asking you stuff. Yeah, she's always watching videos. She's <laughs> listening to podcasts. At 11, this little girl is more interested in making money than my 16-year-old by far. <laughs> And, and we're going through and we're talking about, you know, what your time is worth and how all that applies. And we get into the conversation of what do we do with our savings? So one of, I'm going to give props to one of our, our audience members, uh, Timothy Bull, wrote a book, The Richest Boy in Athens. And I, I read that with her and we were talking about it and talking about the story, which mimics the adult version, which is The Richest Man of Babylon, which is a favorite of yours and I. Yes. And in the end, you know, he was saying to pay yourself first and then take this money to then be able to buy the toy that he want. And I said, well, here's the only twist I would have to that is that I would I would say instead of spending your savings, you should put your savings to work. You should create an asset. An asset is what puts money in your pocket, right? Right. So we should find ways to get that at work. And she said, well, dad, how do we? have assets. I go, oh, well, good question. We own apartment complexes that that pay us money monthly. We do? Why don't we stay at those? <laughs> I was like, well, they're here in town, girl. You know, like and they're local. We we have a house. We don't have to do that. She goes, oh, that's a good point. Because she was thinking like when we travel on vacations, she's like, well, why don't we stay at those? Why don't we stay at all these little random houses to stay at ours? And so we started talking about that money coming in, and, and it was just fascinating to her. And I can only imagine that being very similar to your experience as you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You start to get that kind of initial take of what passive income would mean to your life. And Joey, as we were interviewing Keith Weinhold from the Get Rich Education podcast, someone who wrote for the Rich Dad organization for a while, just like many, that was his start too. Yeah, I, I'm not shocked to hear his progression and his story that started with that book and then led him into like being the OG house hacker, as he'll share in this episode, <laughs> which I, I love. And I mean, here's the other part that I think you're going to take away from this episode is that you don't have to start huge. You just have to get started. How many lessons did he learn along the way that ended up becoming uh, part of his education that has led him to where he is now? And um, some of those were mistakes along the way, but we can all get on that same path. And uh, man, I'll tell you the last thing, and I don't wanna give away the whole episode, 
but there is so much that he shares that is not commonplace knowledge, mm. like about equity in your house. I mean, you and I were sitting there just fist pumping in the air. Yes, yes, yes. But most people think of that equity as like it's something important. He's like, stop fooling around with your equity. This is not the way to expand. Well, I, I think the words that he uses is that financial freedom is not debt freedom. And yes. so often we hear people who have accumulated so much equity in their house has become that pride moment. It's that badge of honor. Good for you, right? Like I, there's nothing wrong with creating equity in your house, but maybe it's just not its best place, right? Maybe it's not its highest potential use. Yes. Maybe yes. you can find better uses. And he gives that away. He talks about what he did, how he went from a fourplex to owning over 80 doors across the country. He is definitely a sought after speaker, someone that you ought to be listening to on a regular basis outside of this podcast. I think that that's one that you would find value in. But why don't we hear from him with us right now? Let's jump in with Keith Weinholt. Welcome to the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast, your guide to understanding how to get out of the Wall Street rat race and start your own mailbox money lifestyle. Now, don't let these handsome Southern draws fool you. These financial minds are teaching our country to enhance savings, increase cash flow, and create passive income, all without the help of Wall Street. Are you ready to break through? Now here are your hosts, Russ Morgan and Joey Murray. Welcome into the show. We have today a great, great guest. Keith Weinhold of Get Rich Education has joined us here. Keith, so glad to have you, man. Hey, it's an honor to be here. Thanks, fellas. Keith, we had a chance to to talk recently. We were on your podcast. We're very like-minded. I think our audiences uh, are similar in nature, trying to find passive income. Your podcast, obviously, Get Rich Education, really resonates with the thought process of we have to invest in ourselves. So I really want to talk initially, though, to your background. How did you invest in yourself? How did you get into this financial education world? Yeah, that's a great point. Like a lot of people, this is not a unique story. A lot of it began with reading that little purple book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And really that taught me, you know, Keith, don't live below your means, expand your means. But I think a lot of people stop there because they don't have a vehicle in which to expand their means. I moved from Pennsylvania to Anchorage, Alaska more than 15 years ago, maybe an expansionary move in itself. And, and shortly after settling in Anchorage, you know, I made a few friends and two of my friends had made their first ever property that they owned a fourplex building where they lived in one unit and rented out the other three. And I don't come from an entrepreneurial or real estate family. And I just had a regular day job in Anchorage and I didn't have a lot of money. But I learned that with just a three and a half percent down payment and an FHA loan, I could buy something as big as a fourplex building. That's as big as you can go live in one unit and rent out the other three. That's all you need to do to qualify for the financing. So this vehicle sort of appeared in my life of real estate. I had some knowledge on why that might make sense by reading the Rich Dad book. But I think a lot of it goes back to a quote that many people in our space have heard, Russ and Joey, the Jim Rohn quote, you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. Well, I was surrounding myself with kind of aspirational and expansionary people. And sure enough, two of those five friends showed me how I can do this, how I can make it real, how I can expand my means with just a three and a half percent down payment in a midtown Anchorage fourplex. 
So you the, the first investment that you made was into a fourplex in a brand new city and state that you were in. Yeah. And what was that experience? How how did that go? Well, I was basically only living for free because the three rent incomes pretty much offset the mortgage payment and most of the other recurring expenses. Maybe I was negative $200 cash flow, but I was living in an $800 unit. So it worked out for me, but I learned a lot of tough lessons. When you buy a building like that, you inherit tenants. So in a way that's good <laughs> because you do have income from day one, but in another sense, you're not the one that selected those tenants. And yeah, I had my first run in with, yeah, tenant says they're going to pay the rent and you just kind of trust them and they don't pay the rent and you need to replace them with another one. And I'm not a handyman. I don't know how to fix things very well. So a lot of times I had to uh, hire outside contractors and that cost me more money to do those things. That's really not where my skill set is. But after owning that fourplex building for a few years, I began to realize what it was doing for me. See, on the day I bought the building, I pretty much understood I was living nearly for free. Russ and Joey, when I bought that fourplex building, I did not even know what the terms cash flow and equity meant at that time. <laughs> I think there's a bit of a lesson in that. It's okay to start a little bit before you're ready, as long as you're not completely jumping into something. But I would soon learn that this vehicle, this fourplex, really the reason that it allowed me to expand my means is that not only was I getting my money to work for me, like a lot of employees do in their 401k plan that just think, oh, what's better than getting my money to work for me? The lesson it taught me is ethically get other people's money to work for you. It's ethical because I'm doing well and I'm providing people with good housing. There's a leak in a hot water heater, pay someone to replace it. There's some laminate flooring coming up, make sure that that gets right. And I'm using other people's money three ways at the same time without even having any degree or any certification. I learned that I was using the bank's money for the loan, the tenant's money for the income stream, and the government's money for very generous tax incentives that I was getting with each successive tax return. So that's a paradigm shift. It's not focusing on getting your money to work for you. It's getting other people's money to work for you. And that's one way of expanding your means. No doubt. I mean, that that's really taking what you have already and multiplying it. Um, I, I think back to, you know, the new term of what you actually did. You may be the OG of what everybody is now calling house hacking. I mean, did you did you had you heard that term before or is that that's that's new, right? I had not heard that term house hacking. I think that came along a bit later. After they watched you do it, they were like, you know what? We're going to come up with this idea. Yeah, let's let's call it house hacking. And, and that's interesting, too, that you are going through an experience where not only you're learning how to be an investor, you're learning how to be a landlord. You're in, in a lot of situations, I imagine, and you've probably experienced this later on in life, that it's unusual, too, for the landlord to be living, to also be a neighbor, right? So when you said you had an experience <laughs> where the person wasn't paying, it's even more awkward because you potentially are, are like, you've probably had some pleasantries with the person in the driveway, the backyard, whatever it is, because you're just so close to them. 
That's right. There are pros and cons of being an on-site landlord. And I'm certainly not a landlord now, although I own more rental property than ever, because my best and highest use isn't being a landlord. It's in outsourcing the property management. I'm in real estate investing because I want to improve my quality of life. I don't want 80 tenants to be able to text me. But yes, starting out, there are a lot of lessons in management. And much like you say, Russ, when you're an on-site property manager, like I was in that fourplex building, again, you have to be, to get that loan type, you have to live in one of the units for at least 12 months. Sometimes the good side is, oh, a tenant, I see that they, they're keeping a dog. You're not allowed to have dogs here. I know that sooner and I know that because I live on site so I can nip that at the bud. But then the cons are, eh, if you're running into your tenants on the sidewalk all the time, some of them can be a little nitpicky. Like, um, you know, our, our cabinets are just ever so slightly loose again. Will you come in to, to take a look at them? And it's 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 almost nothing. So, you know, there are certainly some some pros and cons there of, of being an on-site manager. And that's where a lot of the lessons are learned, including some hard ones. Well, you so, said so something that, that I definitely wanted to, to dive into, which is, that you no longer are doing the property management, that you yeah. found a way to offload that. Talk about that transition. When did that happen and how's your experience been there? That happened six or seven years after buying that first fourplex. So I soon used the accumulated equity from the first fourplex that I just described to you into a down payment for a second fourplex, adding none of my own money and then I had moved out of the fourplex. So I had owned eight units. I got married. My wife and I lived about five miles away from the properties in a single family home. So, you know, that did increase my quality of life. And I was managing eight properties by myself. And that with a full-time job, it just got to be too much. I'm really into fitness. I'm really into travel. It's at that point that I hired a property manager. Eight units, each of them being about five miles away from me and each of those buildings being a couple miles apart. That was just more than what I wanted to do as still a full-time job worker at that point with eight units. So it was at eight units where I got a property manager and I kissed the frog on the first one. That first manager only lasted about one year. And then I found the right property manager about a year later. Well, so, so what was it about, like, was it that, that network of friends that kind of led you into this idea of thinking about someone else managing the property or was it your further education and reading, or you were just kind of like hands up, like somebody's got to help me with this. I can't handle this. What, what was it that led you down that path? Yeah, it's it. One of my friends got a manager and I saw what their experience was like. And, you know, they were living a, a better quality of life than me and, you know, taking vacations in Hawaii and not having to worry about it. And a lot of people don't understand what a property manager does. They handle all of the tenant relations. They collect the rent check. They know the landlord and tenant law. So they would know, you know, when to post a, a notice that someone has been late with their payment. And they collect all those rents and they send it to you in just one draft, one EFT draft into your account each month. So they also itemize all of your expenses for you. So it makes it easier for your bookkeeper. You typically pay eight to 10% of the rent amount. That's what's lost to the property manager. So a thousand dollars of monthly rent means it 80 to $100 per month goes to your property manager. But that began to increase my quality of life. And I had to let go. I had to stop being a control freak. I would get a bit too emotional about the property, maybe because that first fourplex is one that I lived in myself. You know, I still remember between tenant turns when a vacant 
uh, unit came about, you know, me doing weird things like getting down on my hands and knees where the brown baseboard is and kind of kind of trying to use a brown marker to color a little nick on the baseboard and all these things. And I was, I was trying to be too much of a perfectionist. So as soon as I let go and reminded myself that, hey, you know, facts trump emotions here. This is an investment. It's not something to get emotional about. I still let a manager take over. Can they do a good a job, as good a job as me? No, but for me to get involved just to get that last 2% of perfection is not worth it. Because as investors, we often think about ROI. We're throwing around the term ROI. What's your return on investment a lot? But I started to to ask myself rather a different question. What's my ROTI? What's my return on time invested in this? And Mm. as soon as I handed over the management reins, my return on time invested went up, even though I was less profitable in a dollars and cents standpoint because I was paying the management fee. So it's about asking yourself a better question. Again, expanding your means. Well, you said that, Keith. So you, you, at this point, you've gotten to eight units. Someone else is running those. We like to, on this on this show, and I'm sure you mentioned it on yours as well, is we think about Robert Kiyosaki's formula to, to financial freedom being passive income greater than monthly expenses. Well, so give us a, a standpoint at that point in time, were you getting close to that number to where you could ultimately have that freedom or how far off were you? That's a good question. At that point in which I had those eight units, I was just getting about $1,500 in monthly cash flow after paying a property manager and all that. So, you know, really nowhere close to quitting my job and having enough passive income to retire. Gotcha. Okay. So what was your next step after that? My next step with that portfolio is when equity had accumulated in each one of those buildings, in doing my first ever 1031 tax deferred exchange. Again, I don't wanna put up my own money if I don't have to, it's about using other people's money. So with the accumulated equity in those two fourplex buildings, I traded up those two fourplex buildings with the addition of very little of my own cash for both an 11 unit building and an eight unit building. So I've gone from eight units to 19 units now. And my passive cash flow from these properties then went from $1,500 off the two fourplexes up to about $3,500 professionally managed in this uh, local 11-unit building and eight-unit building. And and you know what, fellas? That move right there, that would give a lot of people pause because they would say, well, wait, you're moving from several hundred thousand dollars in debt on these buildings to more than a million dollars. This is about $1.2 million in debt on the buildings that I had had traded up to now. But the mindset that moved me from eight units up to 19 units is that financially free beats debt-free. Yes, I was taking on more debt, that is in my name or my LLC's name, but if that debt is 100% outsourced to tenants because they're cash flowing rentals, meaning income exceeds expenses, I wanna take that all day because the payments are durably outsourced to tenants and I also benefit from inflation when I take on more debt, but really the takeaway is that financially free beats debt-free. I had more than doubled my cash flow with that one particular move, a 1031 tax-deferred exchange, meaning the capital gain from the sale of those two fourplexes 
is taxed at nothing as long as I move it into two larger properties within certain timelines. I just read this comment. It was so drawing joy. I wanted to share it. I realized that my time is not really mine. It's my company's. Now I have to stop negotiating my time for money and I need to start working to become financially free. That's exactly how I felt when my daughter Adler asked me on the way to school, dad, can you pick me up from school today? And I had to say, no, baby, I have to go to work. That's where I drew the line. In order for you to be clear on the things you need to do and stop doing and to know who you need to become so that you can stop trading time for money, join us right now at wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash passport. Now let's get back to this episode. So what as an investor, we talk a lot on the show that it's not the investment, it's the investor, right? So what were some of those level up things that you did as an investor that gave you the the courage or gave you the confidence to level up, to go to that next higher, you know, bigger units, going from a couple hundred thousand in debt to over a million dollars in debt. What were some of those things that you could share that you learned, that experience that someone else can gain from your from yours? I, I think the mindset to make me want to do that is understanding that financial freedom is more important than debt freedom. It's really that understanding that I would not want to do something, for example, like make an extra principal payment on my mortgages and just stay small and just stay small with one or two fourplexes and try to pay those down. That's a slow way to wealth. As soon as I make an extra principal payment to the bank, what I'm saying is, hey, Mr. Banker, here's an extra $500 principal pay down. Don't pay me any interest on it. If I need it back, I'll pay you fees and I'll prove to you that I qualify again. But, but and, Keith, where did you get where did you get that from? So I agree 100% with that, what you're saying. But where for you, where was that aha moment? Do you remember where you could say, that's when I, I gained that knowledge and I thought, ooh, I'm missing it. I need to make this next step. Yeah, it's a good point. I just think it's really being in this world, including that that rich dad world and hanging around people like Ken McElroy, understanding that that's how you build portfolios. Because by this time, with those two original friends that influenced me to buy the fourplex, I had bypassed them. I was more into real estate than they were at this point, And they were still kind of more into the, the pay it down mindset because, you know, that's what my dad taught me when, when interest rates were 18% back in 1981 and all that. So it was that I personally had taken more of an interest in educating myself on how to do this. And really, I'm kind of like, you know, locally and among my friends, I'm really more the the black sheep now, expanding my means rather than living below them. I love what you're saying. And the old mindset is debt freedom. Like the the small thinking is the way to like any sort of prosperity is to get rid of debt but as we know, and we talk about on the show all the time, the the freedom formula includes both sides of the equation. If you don't have passive income and you have no debt, you're still not free. It's just debt freedom, as you mentioned. I love that that uh, delineation that you're making is call it what it is. It's not financial freedom. It is debt freedom if that's your goal. Uh, but why not focus on expanding your means through the addition of passive income. And uh, so, so you've, you've expanded up. You've, uh, as we talk about in the cash flow game, you've traded 
uh, you've gotten those market cards and you've um, sold one and bought the bigger one to get to out of the rat race. Where did that then lead you after that? Because I know you, we have to fill in all the gaps to the point where now you're a, a author, a podcast host, all these things that most people are listening and saying, okay, how did he go from just being that guy on a fourplex to here? And so anyways, give us the next steps. The next step is, you know, it's something this is so important to real estate investors. You know, Russ and Joey, we've been talking about properties an awful lot here, but it was in the year 2012 that I got this greater wherewithal in this greater context about real estate investing that the market is more important than the property. And at this point, I had bought all my properties in my local market. The market is more important than the property because, you know, one needs to understand that really in rental real estate, it's the durability of the income stream that comes from the tenants. That's what makes this entire thing work. If the tenants rent income doesn't come in, you know, you're in trouble. Then, you know, uh, having the debt is not good if I would have to pay it myself. So in 2012, I started buying in different markets in Texas and in Florida and I'm so glad I did because the Anchorage economy really took a downturn in 2015. And, you know, I'm probably still overweighted in Anchorage. I still have some of those buildings here. But I started buying out of market, understanding that the market is more important than the property. And when most people think about real estate investing, you know, they start to think about what kind of property they can buy. And sure, that's good. That's really an important thing. But really, the property is only the fourth most important thing in real estate investing. The most important thing to you here, the Wealth Without Wall Street viewer or listener, is what do you want real estate to do for you? Are you looking for cash flow like I was? Or are you looking for appreciation or tax benefits? Or maybe it's even a lifestyle component where you can live in a resort property a few weeks a year. What do you want real estate to do for you? It's about starting with what you want. The second most important thing is that market, a market that's typically big enough, typically the bigger metros have broader economic uh, ballast and industry there such that you can have a reasonable expectation that you can have a tenant that pays the rent. You want to look for a place that's probably growing in population and jobs. And then the third most important thing is that team of professionals, especially having a good, sound property manager in a market. And then really the fourth thing, and only the fourth most important thing is the property. So once you've got you the market and the team figured out, then look at the property. And, and you know, Russ and Joey, so many people get that backwards. They start with a property, which is how I started when I bought a fourplex in Anchorage. I didn't even consider the broader economy or population growth, but people start with a property. Then after they bought the property, they realize they don't want to manage it. And then they try to figure out if they can find a manager in that market. And then they try to figure out the economic fundamentals of the market they're in and they, they get it all backwards. So I actually got kind of lucky when I bought that first fourplex, I'm not offended if someone calls me lucky because I did just happen to buy it in a growing economy, but I really didn't know to look for that. So really the lesson is the property is only the fourth most important thing. And that's really a paradigm shift for a lot of real estate investors. Well, well let's talk about that then, because I don't think most of us are trained as real estate investors, right? Unless we had a parent or grandparent or someone else who mentored us at a young age that was able to teach us these small things that, that we have to learn as adults. How do you know, where do you go to, to look for a growing economy, right? What resources are you trusting as, oh, this is a marketplace that I should be looking at? 
BLS.gov is a free resource, neighborhoodscout.com. That is a paid resource that tells you things like population growth and, and crime data and where the best school districts are and so on. But otherwise, it's generally, I like to invest in places in the United States, Midwest and South, including where you guys are, because those areas generally have the best ratio of rent income to purchase price. And those areas also tend to have laws that are more tenant, uh, unfriendly to tenants and advantageous to landlords. Namely, one is able to get a, a timely eviction, maybe in as little as a few weeks for a non-paying tenant, where places like the coast, California and New York, you might not be able to get rid of a non-paying tenant for more than a year. And the ratio of rent income to purchase price just doesn't work very well there either. So we're talking about markets being more important than properties now. So that's why I do most of my buying in the Midwest and South. You know, it's probably a good thing to be relatively geographically agnostic. That's really how you want to think of things. So I own properties in diverse markets, mostly in the United States, and they each have a property manager for that particular market. So I'm diversified geographically that way. Uh, that's awesome. That actually, I, recently I found this Zillow post that was talking about um, markets in which rents exceeded the mortgage payment by you know the greatest uh, spread. And so I put this in uh, in our community within the long term rental group that exists. And you're you're exactly right. Where where these exist, Midwest and South, number one market for the spread between. Um, the price of typical monthly mortgage payment and um, the rent is Miami. Then you have Atlanta. Then you have Tampa. You've got Orlando, Charlotte, uh, Birmingham, Oklahoma City, uh, Indianapolis, Memphis. These are yeah. all those same markets. The only one that was a little bit, it was really interesting to me, um, that was kind of out of the range was Detroit. <laughs> and and it was because the uh, the typical mortgage in Detroit was like a couple of hundred dollars because the real estate, I guess, has been so devalued there yeah. um, over all, all the um, car manufacturers and everybody else leaving town that I guess somebody was picking up <laughs> property really cheap. Yeah, those are the places that I like to invest, being mindful that the market is more important than the property. And I only want to make 20 to 25% down payments on those properties and use leverage, again, using other people's money, the bank's money. It's typically more advantageous to do it that way. I would rather own $500,000 properties with 20% down payments on each one of them rather than one $100,000 property completely paid off. And that's for a few reasons. When interest rates today are less than the rate of inflation, I'd actually be losing prosperity if I don't take out a loan. Because when I go to repay the bank, those dollars get deflated even faster than, int than uh, interest can possibly accrue on me. So that's why I want to take that deal. It's creating leverage, financial leverage. And financial leverage trumps compound interest. To give an example, just the simplest example of financial leverage and why I want to take out loans on properties is if I put a $20,000 down payment into a $100,000 property, and yes, you still can find these in the United States, Midwest and South, property historically the NAR will tell you appreciates at about 6% a year. Okay, so therefore your 100K property would appreciate to 106. All right, well, so what, 6%, that's not very thrilling. 
until you understand what your ROI formula is. Your ROI formula is your gain 6K divided by the amount of skin you put in the game 20K. That's a 30% return. And some people that are not initiated on this were like, well, wait, well, how did that happen? How did you go from a 6% return to a 30% return? That is because you got a 6% gain on both your $20,000 down payment and you got a 6% return on the 80K that you borrowed from the bank. See, that 6% on the 80K that you borrowed from the bank doesn't go to the bank. That goes to you. That's financial leverage. And that's really why it trumps compound interest. That's a 30% leveraged gain. Well, this is great wisdom that you're sharing. Talk about your podcast for a second. I hope our audience will, will um, when looking for this kind of information, will seek you out because what we have found uh, doing our own research and being around you just a little bit is that these are the typical conversations you're having. You're talking about the markets in which property um, that you're personally buying in, that you have clients and friends buying in. Talk a little bit about what you're sharing on your podcast and, and some of the um, nuggets like this that could be gained from listening. Oh, thanks for that. Yeah, it's about expanding your means on the Get Rich Education podcast. We've had, you might be a listener to the show already because we really have every guest you've ever heard of there. Um, like Robert Kiyosaki will run alongside me for an episode. I used to write for his Rich Dad Advisors or, or Grant Cardone or a lot of people that you've heard of before. And really it's been great for the show because they kind of corroborate what I say. Um, and I say some things that are blasphemous to some people. Like, for example, <laughs> you probably want to get into good debt. So I've done that every week for seven years on the Get Rich podcast. Well, and I think Keith, what you're saying is the, the, it seems counterintuitive what yeah. you're talking about because the world is constantly preaching this alternate way of, of just kind of playing it safe, not growing your means, but just almost like a scarcity kind of idea. And what you're talking about is this abundance and leverage being the means to Somebody, you know, I actually was watching a video the other day and they talk about how this janitor was able to amass $8 million over his lifetime. And you think, well, how, how is that possible? And it's because they didn't allow the, what they were currently given in terms of their actual professional career, if you will, as the limit or as the lid they expanded that lid through things like what you're talking about, very simple ideas, but most people never understand leverage and these levers that you can pull to, to really substantially increase your, your steps towards financial freedom. I mean, just in our community alone, we have had people that are school teachers, people that drive excavators, people that run lawn companies, that are getting to and exceeding financial freedom goals in within three years. And you think, okay, this should be everybody's ability to do this. They just have to educate themselves. So Russ, what are your thoughts on that in, in terms of even, well, like we the, talked about the hierarchy of wealth. Well, the last thing I, I, I know we're, we're scarce on time. Unfortunately, we're abundant on many things. Time is the one thing that we, <laughs> we don't get to buy back. We, we slowly are working on that. But I, because you're such a, an advocate of real estate investing, you're a pro 
um, turnkey or property managed uh, real estate, give the person who's listening, who's on the fence, who hasn't taken that step, who's identified real estate as a fit for them, but they're still concerned. They, they look at their market and they say, well, I'm not in a growing market and I'm concerned about investing in a property that's in a city or state completely different than I am. What are the one or two nuggets that you would share with them to, to maybe give them the confidence to take the action that you've taken? Yeah, you know, if someone is fearful, which is a, a common thing to think, um, I mean, really, the, the business that I'm largely in now is, is taking sort of the everyday listener, telling them why real estate's made more ordinary people wealthy than anything else, because they've just never had it simply explained to them, and then introducing them to trusted providers in many states, including ones that I use, and I still actively buy property from myself, even single family homes in these other markets. So it's about getting that, that trust and that reputable operator that's been doing this in a market over time. And I just love the democratization of information that's persisted for decades. I mean, it's harder to be a shady operator today than it was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when people were hiding behind screen names and so on. So it's really about vetting that trusted operator in a different market. And, you know, I think part of overcoming the fear of loss, one of the understandings is that real estate investors are typically paid five ways simultaneously, where in the stock world, you might only get paid one way, maybe two if you have a dividend paying stock. As a real estate investor, I expect to get paid up to five ways with appreciation, cash flow, the ROA, which is a return on amortization, that means your tenant paying down your loan for you. You don't have that benefit in your primary residence because you pay down principal with dollars that you work for. The fourth is that big basket of tax benefits, which we don't have time to get into. And then the fifth is an inflation profiting benefit that you actually get on the long-term fixed interest rate debt. So, you know, I think a lot of investors, Russ and Joey, they think, you know, maybe there's a, a season to be offensive in my investor life and there's another season to be defensive. But when you're paid five ways at the same time, you can be both offensive and defensive simultaneously. Appreciation and cash flow are offensive. And then your return on amortization, the tax benefits and the inflation profiting benefit, they're defensive. So with all the income streams that you get, as long as you buy right, oftentimes with a turnkey provider in the Midwest and South, it's really hard to go wrong. Oh, I love this, Keith. And I'm gonna go ahead and give you a pass on cussing on the show earlier when you said something about stocks, like we, we don't use those kind of profanity <laughs> on the show, but um, I'm going to give you a pass because you've brought so much value to us. Uh, for those of us who want to connect with you outside of here, obviously, uh, if you're not already a part of the community, Keith, we need to make sure you join um, our app and, and people can connect with you there. But outside of there, uh, what are some ways people can get to know you and, and learn more about what we've laid out today? Sure. You have to go ahead and bleep out that stock stocks word in editing there. <laughs> you can learn more about me at the Get Rich Education podcast and YouTube channel. And actually, if the, the five ways you're paid went a little fast for you, I have a free video course, five videos, about 12 minutes each, one hour in total on the five ways that real estate pays you. So you can see how real estate really does make more people wealthy than anything else. That is it. GetRichEducation.com slash course. It's a completely free course. I don't try 
try to upsell you to get you to buy some other course. It's just great education because no one has ever had it explained clear to the, clearly to them why real estate makes more ordinary people wealthy than anything else. You can get that at getrichteducation.com slash course. Man, thank you, Keith. What an amazing thing. Definitely head over there to um, to get that free resource. Check Keith out on his podcast. And I hope that uh, you'll connect with him in our community as well. Keith, is a pleasure. I love getting to learn a little more about your background. Thanks for sharing some amazing information on uh, rental properties and how we can grow our wealth that way. And as always, thank you, the listener, to uh, listen to this podcast. If you got value from Keith, I hope that you'll go rate and review this show, share it with someone else. Maybe, as Keith said, that every one of us are trying to expand our means. And um, there's people that maybe you are uh, the top on their uh, out of their five that they look to as the person uh, that helps influence them. Be the one to share it with them, but then also go find four other people uh, who's smarter, who can expand your means, as Keith said, so that you can level up. And as always, have an amazing day. This has been the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to break free of the Wall Street mindset and begin building wealth on your own terms in places you understand so that your wealth will never run dry. See you next episode.